Welcome. With Michael Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a serious XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. What a privilege for me to have Pete Hamill in studio. Big fan of your work, and I'm glad that you're here. The legendary uh, reporter, editor, novelist. I want to make sure that I get those uh, short stories in there. Uh, The Sinatra, what am I thinking of? Why Sinatra Matters. Sid Mark appreciates you saying that, by the way. Sid hosts his nationally syndicated uh, Frank Sinatra show right here from these studios. Hey, by the way, did you eat one of those pastries? Unbelievable. Because, Pete, you're, you're a story guy. I mean, I love stories. You write good stories. Do you know the story behind the pastries? I, I have no idea, no. So uh, there's a local baker, and his name is Rich Patron, and he's the father of Richard Patron Jr. It's his son who walks into a night spot on South Street in Center City, I guess by now uh, 18 months ago, with his significant other, girlfriend, and they are seen exiting the club at about midnight that night. Uh, They are never seen again. The pickup truck that he would drive at the time, never located, just vanished. And for a while, you know, it made the national headlines and so forth, but you don't have some uh, little blonde hottie, Mm. so it doesn't stay in the news. It is the most unbelievable story happened right here in Philly. Big question mark. And if the pastries show up, it's usually Rich Patron who has sent them over. The grieving father. No closure. Nothing. Holy mackerel. Yeah. Hey, I love your stuff. Thank Um, you. I got turned on to you when you wrote Forever. So I'm a little bit of a late arrival because now you've you've done 10 novels, right? North River is number 10? Yes. All right. So I caught up with number nine, and it was... It was kind of strange. I mean, strange in a good way because it's it's a story about a uh, someone who has. I was going to say immorality, but no, he has <laughs> he has immortality. He's yes. an Irish immortal, yes. and he's going to be immortal as long as he stays on the Isle of Manhattan. Yeah. You see what I would the lengths to which I would go to avoid writing about New Jersey, right, or Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it is incredible. But really, what that book was, if if I can start with forever, it was a great history of New York City. Well, that was the the idea was that I was inspired by a mural by Diego Rivera in Mexico City, which I loved because on the GI Bill, yeah. you went and studied art in Mexico. Yeah, Who gets I did. to do that? Yeah, the, the G, only people who got the GI Bill, I mean, in those days. And the mural had – was the history, the whole history of the country in one mural. And it, it included the villains too because it could not be heroes without villains. And the greater the villain, the greater the heroes. And I looked at it but, and yet both were portrayed with affection. And I thought originally of just doing a novel that was kind of like that mural. And I finished it on September 10th, 2001. Um, And 10 days later, after everything calmed down a little bit, I knew I had to go back in and I couldn't do a, a novel that was the whole history of Manhattan. 
and leave out its greatest calamity. So I had to rewrite again for another year. Um, and the notion was to get – because we're all ignorant about local history. New York history is not taught in the schools. Now with a, another generation of immigrants, it should be because they teach their parents. Mm -hmm. But if you take any community and really dig into the history, the history of the whole country begins to emerge. You start saying, why did this work and it didn't work in other countries? Why – what are the strengths? Why, why did it work? And it's best not to write an essay about that, but to dramatize it in some way to make it vivid and alive and as fresh as yesterday's paper. I think that one of the reasons why what you write, as the president would say, resonates with me is that uh, my own, you know, my own family dynamic. No, no, no Irish. You you write affectionately about, you know, the, the, the Irish and the ups and downs. But uh, in my world, mom, Yugoslavian, dad, Ukrainian and Italian. But that whole sort of Ellis Island experience, very much a part of the fabric of where I come from. So when you tell these stories, I'm into them naturally because I can see a lot of my relatives in your pages. Good. Now, in the new book, in North River, you're writing about a doctor who was in the Great War, uh, Jim, Dr. Delaney. Dr. Delaney, uh, uh, anyway, it's um, he's a good guy. Yes. He's a good guy. I keep waiting for yes. for something untoward to happen, and don't ruin it. I've got 20 pages left in the book, and I deliberately <laughs> – look, at you see where I am? I, le I deliberately left the <laughs> ending for after I get to meet Pete Hamill. Uh, what was the motivation for this? This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124, and on the SXM app. Uh, what was the motivation for this? Uh, several things. One, in forever, I left out the whole depression when I had to start cutting to be able to get September 11th into it. So I glided through like a dissolve in a movie. And I wanted to fill in those blanks. But also I wanted to I wanted to celebrate that generation of people that got me here. Not just me, but my whole generation. I was ten when World War Two ended. So I was born nineteen thirty five in the depths of the depression, have no memory of it. And yet the people that were scarred by it or ennobled by it were the people that brought me up in the best sense, starting with my mother and father who were immigrants from Northern Ireland. Um, so I wanted to celebrate them because, you know, I agree with Brokaw. They are the greatest generation. Are there no other great people? Of course there were other great people. But when in 1945 in August when the war ended, there was such an eruption of joy and tears and laughter and and optimism because it wasn't simply that the war ended. It was a 15-year period that ended that included the Depression, a period of self-denial, of limits, of austerities of various kinds and casualties. There were people that were mauled by it and never recovered. But I wanted to celebrate those people because they were decent, they were generous, to the limits of what generosity could be, mostly emotional generosity, particularly in the case of doctors, uh, because they had no tools to help people. They didn't have penicillin or sulfur drugs or any of that. Um, and above all, they were tough in the very best sense of that word, which is that they didn't talk tough. 
they were tough. We should give people a, a bit of an insight into the, the, the plot line of North River. You've, you've got this doctor, Jim Delaney, and on uh, New Year's Day, what's the year? 1934. 1934. The year LaGuardia gets sworn in. The day LaGuardia gets sworn in for the first time as pre- as a mayor of New York. His wife is missing, and his daughter leaves him a surprise on the on the stoop. Yes. The he, surprise is a, his, an infant. His three-year-old grandson. Yeah. And, and he has to raise this three-year-old. And a doctor, how the how can he take a, a kid off to on house calls? Right, but a, a doctor who goes to whorehouses and gives them a weekly inspection. Yes. Right, a, a, a doctor who gets called by a mobster in the middle of the night because yeah. he's got to stitch him up after a gunshot. Yeah. There's a lot going on in his, his world. Yes, because that was the world. <laughs> right. You know, the, that was the world, and there were... And he was the son uh, of an old Tammany Hall uh, ward healer, they would call them in those days, with affection in many cases. And so he had a sense that this was his neighborhood. He couldn't abandon it at this point when everybody needed him because the deal was simple. $2 for a uh, an office visit, $3 for a house call, and if right. you didn't have the money or you were a veteran of the war, you didn't pay. Right. You know, that was what I mean by the generosity. They weren't good. And this was before there was a, a developed public health program. And It sounds like you're, you're not going to sour me in the last 20 pages, that uh, that he's not going to turn out to be, uh, uh, you know, a bad guy, which is, which is good news because so often you read, and you, at least I do, and I get disappointed. Speaking of the world in which uh, he lived and that you write about, I would love to have hung out with Pete Hamill in the late 60s or the 70s because you must have been a firecracker. You must have been – you're, you're on the wagon now. Uh, I am. And, 34 and, years. And and you wrote A Drinking Life, yes. which was on the New York Times bestsellers list for many, many years. By the way, which of which of your many works are you most proud? Not which was the most commercially successful, but what are you most proud? I think the best one is Forever. Uh, the one I have the most affection for is Snow in August. Uh, and the new book, um, obviously the one you most recently spent two years of your life with, is the one that you're rooting for. It's like your sure. youngest child. Of course. But you think you Forever know. is your best work. Yes, because uh, it was the most difficult task. If I were to come to, to New York City and have an afternoon of hanging out with Pete Hamill, a sober Pete Hamill today... Okay. Nevertheless, where are we going for lunch? What What are you going to show me in New? I mean, you're the guy who knows that town. What are you going to show well, me that I'm not going to learn from the concierge at the uh, plaza? It depends on on uh, your taste. For example, if you like Chinese food, there's yeah. a place I go to in Chatham Square called Dim Sum Go Go, which sounds like a place sounds like Hooters with, with, uh, with Dim Sum to- topless waiters <laughs> yeah. or something. It's not. It, they the Go Go was. Meant to imply home delivery. Uh, they have the best dim sum in Chinatown, in my opinion. If you like Japanese food, there's a place called Sabayo on 9th Street. 9th Street is now a kind of Japanese, young Japanese street for all the students from Cooper Union and NYU and so on. You a Sopranos fan? I was, yeah. Did you see the the scene in that second to last episode where I think it's Butchie is on the phone and he's he's talking to Frank Vincent uh, Phil Leotardo, and in the conversation begins in Little Italy, and by the time the conversation ends, he's in Chinatown because <laughs> Little Italy is now only a block. Yeah, and it's by the way a Sopranos theme park. You know, you go to Mulberry Street, 
uh, in little former Little Italy. Right. And uh, you, you get forget about it T-shirts and Sopranos T-shirts and pictures of the family and Paulie Walnuts and everybody else. I took you off your game. Where else yeah. are you taking me if I'm with Pete Hamill and you want to well, show me some special things in New York? Uh, I would always take any visitor to the Battery, first of all, because the view of the harbor is breathtaking. The most famous French immigrant in our history is in the harbor holding a torch up, which illuminated the lives of millions of people. Um, You can get a sense of why New York is there, because without the harbor, there's no New York. Um, And you can see the way the rivers frame Manhattan Island, but that the city itself is not just Manhattan. It's Brooklyn and Queens. I would also, anybody who's never been there before, take the Circle Line tour. Then you really, it, it sounds like a very square thing to do. My dad always says this. Yeah. He says you got to take that tour. Yeah, because then you understand how much of a city of islands it is. You know, you go under all the bridges. You move around. You get a sense of of the, the 13 miles of Manhattan Island and everything else. Um Eating, I, I don't go uptown much because my nose bleeds when I get above 14th Street. But <laughs> but uh, that's been happening since the 50s. Uh, but there's new places always opening up. Some of the old ones are gone. Uh, what if I'm looking for just a good watering, good Irish watering hole? You're going to tell me there are 20,000 of those. I don't know. I, I Since I, mean, I don't drink anymore, I'm not the guy to, to talk about that. When I – about – Ten years into sobriety, I ran into Gil Clancy, the famous fight trainer, very wonderful guy, smart. He says, let's go have a drink. I said, Gil, I retired with the title. He said, what division? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but I don't know anymore. All right, hold your thoughts. I'm thrilled to have you. I did a segment last week on Jack Valenti. Okay. Yeah. Had his daughter on and so forth. Read his obit. I had no idea the kind of a life that he had led. Character. Yeah. And I said, are the Valentis, are the Hamels, are the Dexters? Dexter was in that chair a month ago. Yeah. Where are they today? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I I don't know why. I part of it is that the 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 careerists triumphed over the craftsmen in the newspaper business. Um, people who want to be deputy assistant managing editor or something instead of going out and covering a murder. Um, and getting it right, making it feel vivid, like the first murderer in the history of the world or something. Um, That was part of it. The other was that newspaper people began to get paid in the 70s what they were worth, which allowed them to move out of a kind of bohemian profession into the middle class and live in the suburbs. And that was a bad thing. That was a bad thing. I, in my opinion, better to you know, what keep them hungry and uh, yeah, smoking pot. And keep, I mean, you what know, and keep them in saloons and keep right. them learning from each other. They were the worst husbands in the history of the world. <laughs> All the women that had good sense would throw them out, um, and the 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 women journalists were not much better as wives, but they were the most fun. I ever had this is life. why I said I would have loved to have just spent a little bit of time with Pete Hamill in the 60s or the 70s in those those glory days. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and at Smirconish.com.